Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. We're going to start this morning by talking about the importance of preparation. Uh, If you think about it, setting out to accomplish, whether it's a task or setting out to tackle some kind of journey without proper preparation, virtually guarantees failure of some kind. And that's why that old adage is uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. You've probably heard that statement at some point. And it holds true. I'll give you an example, small example just this week. Uh, Our kids started back to school. Praise Jesus. (laughs) Praise Jesus. And they're still in school. If COVID causes them to cancel school again, it was been fun being your pastor. But I think I'm moving to Canada, into the woods, to live by myself. So, so they started back to school. It's going so great, but uh, Monday's my day off. And so Tam decided after we drop our kids, we're going to get in some hikes that we can't get in with them uh, when they're with us because of the whining and the slow walking and all of that stuff. So hiking with children as a parent is just extended whining. Is really, if you're like, you see our pictures on Instagram and you're like, this is, I can't wait for this. You can wait. Enjoy it, single people. Enjoy your hikes right now because they get harder just so you know. So Tam and I decided last minute we were going to go on this hike. And uh, again, the problem was we sort of made this decision last minute. And, uh, and I had kind of a crazy morning. I'm a volunteer um, chaplain at Intermountain Christian School this year where my kids go to school. And so I had gone early to do a devotional for the staff that morning and, uh, and then rushed home to pick up Tammy and the kids to get them to school so we could get to this trailhead. And in the midst of all the craziness, somehow, I don't really ever do this, I just like forgot to eat breakfast. And we were going out to do Red Pine Trail, which if you've never done, is not the easiest hike. It's like 8.6 miles, 2,200 feet of elevation gain. And I just, we've done it before and I just forgot all of that. And so I didn't eat anything, I didn't bring any food with me, and we show up to the trailhead, and I, I, I distinctly remember sitting in the driver's seat, seeing my water in the cup holder and thinking, I just don't really feel like carrying that today. And so I left my water, I had nothing on this hike. And so we go out, and, uh, and it didn't go great. It was much harder and steeper than what I remembered. And then on top of all of that, I had forgotten, you might remember Pastor Ashley was here last week, and I'd forgotten I said I would take him to the airport that morning, and I was just like, this is going to be like an hour-long hike. It's not. It's like a three-hour hike. And so literally, Tammy and I, the last mile, are running down the side of the mountain trying to get back so that I can get Ashley to the airport. It was just the whole thing was a mess. I survived but it was rough, and it was only rough because of a lack of preparation. Setting out to accomplish any task or to tackle any journey apart from proper preparation almost guarantees failure. And the truth is, this critical connection between being prepared and success is something that Jesus addressed as well. 
In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a point in his ministry where he is attracting these huge crowds. And, uh, and many of these people that are in the crowd were not following him because they truly desired to be his disciples. They weren't following because they were looking to surrender their life to the way that he was teaching. Some of these people were, the majority of these people actually that were hanging around Jesus, they were there for the show. They wanted to consume these secondary benefits of Jesus' ministry. So they wanted to see the miracles. Who wouldn't want to see some of the things that Jesus did? They wanted to see these exorcisms take place. They wanted to either be healed or bring others to be healed. They wanted to be there when Jesus fed 10,000 people through these miraculous manners. They were there for the show. And so in Luke 14... Jesus emphasizes the importance of preparation if you are going to be his disciples. He sees the crowds. He's concerned that people are following for the wrong reasons. And so he wants to prepare them for the road ahead if they're actually going to be disciples. And so in verse 27, Jesus says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you... Wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. So here's what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that setting out to accomplish a task or to uh, tackle a journey without proper preparation, especially when that journey involves following him, promises failure. And so as we come back to First Peter this morning, we find Peter, like Jesus, working to prepare us as disciples for these seasons of suffering that he's already predicted, that people are already in the midst of, and that he's already promised. And so before we dive in this morning, let's just drop this big idea as an anchor this morning that we'll kind of continue to come back to throughout this text. Our big idea, if you're taking notes, is this. New birth, which we've already talked a lot about, new birth means an entirely new way of life. New birth means an entirely new way of life. So Jesus said that we should calculate the cost of following him, and Peter is going to help us do so by describing this new life that comes when we say yes to following Jesus. And so if you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start back in verse 10 this morning. We'll call this message Preparing for the Road Ahead. Preparing for the Road Ahead. We're going to start in verse 10. Peter kicks off uh, with these transitionary verses that go from this section we've already studied on new birth to some of the demands of, of what come with that. But he starts in transition in verse 10. He says this. He says, concerning this salvation which we've just read a lot about, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you." These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. So in these 
transitional verses, Peter really tells us two things. First, he tells us that the Old Testament prophets who investigated so deeply into the timing of when the Messiah would come and set in motion the redemption of all things, that they had an awareness, even as they wrote, that that the fulfillment of what they wrote was not going to happen in their own time, but hundreds of years later when Christ did in fact come. In fact, there was at least a 400-year period between when the last Old Testament prophetic book was written and the Messiah Jesus did in fact come. So they understood, by God's grace, that ultimately they weren't writing for their own benefit in their own time, but for these followers of Jesus living in the time that Peter wrote. Now, the second thing that he tells us is that this gift of salvation by grace through faith is so amazing that the angels of heaven long to catch even a glimpse of all of this. And that's kind of crazy and amazing if you really think about it. In my imagination, I I sort of picture angels like people clamoring in a crowd to catch a glimpse of something or someone in a parade that they long to see as it goes by. That's the posture of the angels in things pertaining to the salvation that we experience. And now Peter moves on to this description of the new birth meant to help prepare us for the road ahead. Remember, the the new birth means an entirely new way of life. And Peter gets specific about three things. First is this, the new birth means a new way of thinking. The new birth means a new way of thinking. Look at verse 13. Therefore, Peter says, which if you like to circle or highlight in your Bible, circle that word. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, notice again that verse 13 starts with this very important word, therefore. Now, this is just a very simple Bible reading tip for you. If you're ever reading a text that you've just like, maybe you've done that thing where you just open your Bible and let the Holy Spirit guide where you're going to read that day. I used to do that as a kid. That's a terrible way to read the Bible, just so you know. But let's say you're doing that and it just falls open somewhere and you drop in on a verse like verse 13 and the very first word you read is, therefore, it is so important that you go back and you read whatever came before it. Because what it indicates is that everything he's about to say is because of what he's already said. And so that's true here as well. He starts saying, therefore. See, when it comes to the good news of Jesus, order is everything. Order is the difference between religion on the one hand and the way of Jesus on the other. And here's what I mean. When it comes to the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, imperatives always follow indicatives. Imperatives always follow indicatives. And here's what that means. An indicative is a statement of fact. It's something that has happened. And an imperative is a command. And we have to keep those two things straight, and we have to keep them in their biblical order, or we subvert the very gospel that saves us. See, Peter's getting ready to load us up with a few imperatives this morning. He's going to call us to do some things, but he's not calling us to do those things so that God will save us. He's calling us, as we've already seen, to do these things because God has already saved us. And so these are the practices of those who have been born again by faith. Does that make sense? It's very, very important we keep that straight. Now, that being said, I want you to notice that Peter gives a prerequisite of sorts, and then he gives two commands after it. The prerequisite is ensuring that our minds are ready for action. An amazing amount of living the life of a disciple of Jesus starts 
and begins and functions in the mind. And this is why it matters what we give our attention to. It matters what we fill our minds with. It matters what we fixate on and, and these mental loops that we get, stru- get stuck in. What we think about matters. And so this phrase that we translate, ready for action, it actually comes from a Greek phrase that literally means gird up the loins of your mind. I'm thankful for the English translation that we have. <laughs> See, in the first century, people wore longer robes that had to be gathered up or they had to be tied off in order to run or to work unencumbered by the excess fabric. And so that's the picture that Peter's painting here. And so ready for action is a strong way to translate this phrase. Now, unfortunately, we no longer wear robes. I think they look super comfy. If I had a vote, I'd say let's bring robes back. But I think we can all probably think of some examples of clothing that hinders our ability to move. For instance, anyone ever try to run in skinny jeans? It's impossible, okay? The blood's already being cut off to your legs from the waist down, and you can't move in those. Or, or for instance, almost every woman I've ever seen at like a wedding reception always kicks off her high heels to dance because you can't dance in high heels without looking like a baby giraffe taking its first steps. <laughs> so we all, in all seriousness, this is like, this is Peter's concern when it comes to our minds, Peter is calling us to get our minds ready for the action that marks the way of a disciple of Jesus. And this is just loaded with implications, but here's an obvious one. We have to get our minds around the fact that the Christian life demands action from us. We are not saved because of what we do, but being saved demands that we do do some things. So I want to keep ringing this bell. Christian faith is not just an idea we believe. It is a way of life that we receive. And Peter gives us two examples of this new way of life. He says, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this phrase, sober-minded, means to curb the controlling influence of overwhelming emotions or desires and instead to become reasonable. Hence our word sober. So think about this. When someone is under the influence of a substance, they are not in full control. And as a result of not being fully in control, they are not fully reasonable. So they might feel things they would otherwise not feel. They might say things that they regret. They might lose control of their body. But when you sober up, you regain that control that was lost to the influence of the substance. Make sense? And so that's the same sense in which Peter intends that word here. The point is, having and feeling emotions and desires is a significant part of what makes us human. And this is a critical example of what makes us image bearers of God. God feels emotion, God has desires, and so our emotions and our desires are good things. And because we live in an imperfect world, and because we are imperfect beings, our emotions and our desires can run wild and ruin our lives. We have all experienced some version of that at some point. And so Peter says that one action that our minds have to be ready for is to help us think and live a sober, reasonable life, which is absolutely connected to this second command to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because we are prone to set our hope on temporary circumstances and situations. 
And I think this has so much relevance for us right now when we've had this like super restrictive year in our life. Because we all have these things that are our hope, temporary things that our hope is set on. When I think about this year, we all have so many things that we are prone to fix our hope on. And for some of us, our, our like hope on these temporary things is the only thing getting us through this year. So we're prone to fix our hope on a vaccine. Or we're prone to fix our hope on an election. Or we're prone to fix our hope on significant social change. And I would argue that the Bible says that we should fight for these good things in the world. But make no mistake, fighting for something that we want to see happen and fixing our hope on that thing are two very different decisions. Because what if a vaccine doesn't come? What if the person that you believe to be the best fit to lead our country forward politically does not win? What if the social change that we want to see happen does not come or does not come in the timing or in the manner that we want it to come in, then what? See, fixing your hope on temporary things is setting yourself up for a life of frustration, disappointment, and despair. But if we fix our hope on the grace that God has promised to pour out in our lives and he has promised to pour out on our world through Christ, we will never be disappointed. God's promised it. He will deliver it. The day will come when Christ will set all things right. And that is where we fix our hope while we fight for good in the world. New birth means an entirely new way of life. First, new birth means a new way of thinking. Second is this. The new birth means a new way of belonging. A new way of belonging. Look at verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and then he quotes the book of Leviticus here in the Old Testament. He says, be holy because I am holy. Now this is so critical for us because we are a species obsessed with identity. And so what happens is we're all looking for identity in our family of origin. We look for identity in our vocation. We look for identity in our hobbies and our political convictions and the tribes that we are a part of and in the relationships that we care about. We're in this almost constant search for identity, always asking some version of this question, intentionally or unintentionally, who am I? And so in light of this, maybe the single most impactful reality of this new birth through faith in Jesus is that we move from being just a creature created by God to a child redeemed and adopted by the God of the universe. If you are a disciple of Jesus, the single, the single most profound and significant identity you bear is this. You are a son or a daughter of God himself. That's the most important thing about you. It's not your job. It's not the kind of family you grew up in. It's not whether or not you get married. It's not that you're married. It's not whether or not you have kids. All of those things are good and fine and important, but that is not who you are. You are a son or a daughter of God. That's the most important thing about you. You have a faithful and perfect father who loves you unconditionally and is deeply committed to your good. 
And the benefits of being a daughter or a son of God also come with responsibility. Like we are not called to be rebellious, hard-headed, spoiled brats. We are called to live as obedient children, Peter says. See, in the scriptures, we find a host of commands, right? Like, I grew up listening to youth pastors say, like, the, the Bible's not like a, a book with a bunch of rules in it, which is kind of like, mm, kind of it is, dummy. Like, there are a lot of rules in it. There are a lot of commands in it. And us, us trying to get the heart of those commands right really, really matters. But us trying to downplay the fact that the Bible does have commands is unhelpful. So what happens is the Bible's filled with commands like the ones we're reading here and that we're going to continue to read in 1 Peter. And oftentimes, like children, even though we're adults, we're prone to interpret the command of, commands of God as restrictions on our freedom and our enjoyment. Ultimately, you know, that's why we sin. That's why we do, because we believe that in some command that God's given us, that God is trying to restrict something that is good for us. Rather than understanding that what we have in these commands is, in, is instruction meant to guide us into the abundant life that we were created for. Every time we sin, what we are conveying is, God, I know better. I've got three kids. They do that all the time. We are just like them. And it's so easy as parents to criticize and to look down on and to shake our heads and disdain. But the truth is, even as adults, we do the same thing to God over and over and over again. See, unlike God... I am far from a perfect father. And as a result of that, some of my commands that I give my kids are arbitrary. Like there are times where I say things and even they look at me and they're like, that makes no sense. And I don't say it, but I'm thinking that that made no sense. We just need to move past the dumb thing I just said. <laughs> okay? So some of my commands are arbitrary. Some of them are self-serving and selfish. But even still, I would say that the overwhelming sum of the instruction that Tammy and I provide our three kids has behind it their growth, their well-being, and their health. That's what we're after the vast majority of the time. So take what has become a big issue in our house, which is uh, screen time, for example. If we let them, I promise you, our kids would love nothing more than to play video games, text, and FaceTime with their friends all day long. And to use Peter's word here, they are often ignorant to the effects of doing things like spending so much time in front of an iPad. Now, ignorant does not mean stupid. Do we know that? Ignorant just means um, uneducated, unaware, untaught, untrained. We just simply don't know something. And so... We do know some things as their parents, not everything, but some things. And so as a result, we restrict how much time they spend in front of a screen. And here's the important part. We restrict how much time they spend, even we do it for their own good, even though they don't fully understand it. And so there are a number of times when we tell them to get off games or whatever, and you would think like their, their interpretation of that is we are just trying to destroy all the joy in their lives. That's, they think that's our intent. We just wake up every day and we think... How are we going to ruin these kids' lives today? And sometimes I wake up thinking, I wonder how I could ruin my kids' lives a little bit today. <laughs> but most of the time, not. See, what we ask, even when they don't understand, is that they would obey us because we are trying to work for their good. Foundational to the, to, to the child-parent relationship is trust. Children need to be able to trust and parents need to be trustworthy, but kids need to be able to trust that their parents labor from a mature, experienced, and wise perspective on life that sees things that they don't see, that knows things that they don't know, and instructs them accordingly. And while there is no 
perfect earthly parents, God is our perfect heavenly father. And so to belong to him as his child is to trust and obey him. And I think we really love the one side of that, but we struggle with the other. So when I stand up here and I say like the single most important thing about your identity is that you are an adopted child of God, your heart swells for that. And we just love the fact that like my job's not my identity and my performance is not my identity. I am a blood-bought child of God. And then in the next verse, we're told, and so we have to obey and we're like, whoa, well, let's just put the brakes on for a second. (laughs) But the truth is it's both of these things. To belong to him is to trust him. And so when he says things that we don't agree with or that we don't understand or that we see differently, we're always faced with a decision. Will we trust him? Because here, notice he says, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. See, new birth does not mean that all of our old desires disappear. Like any of you that came to faith later in life even, you know you still have things prior to your faith in Jesus that God says is not good for you and that you still desire those things. We all have that. So the difference is not that all of our old desires disappear. The difference is what we do with them. We resist them because they are incongruent with this new birth. And this is what the holiness is that Peter calls us to. To be holy means to be set apart, to belong to God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we are saying yes to no longer living for ourselves. We don't conform to these desires that are contrary to the essential nature of God and his will for our lives. And so here's another way I've been thinking about this this week. How you live highlights who you belong to. How you live highlights who you belong to. And so what we're called to here is to live in a way that is consistent with our identity as a child of God. New birth means an entirely new way of life. It means a new way of thinking. It means a new way of belonging. And then finally, it means a new way of feeling a new way of feeling. Look at verse 17. He says, if you appeal to the Father, which is another way of talking about prayer, who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. So Peter here is teaching us something about the proper posture of our hearts in prayer and also something about the nature of God and our relationship to him. And so let me, let me deal with the latter first. Peter says that the Father judges impartially according to each one's work. What he's saying is God does not overlook the conduct of his kids. God does not overlook the conduct, the conduct of his kids. I remember having friends in high school who um, got in trouble at school. And when they're confronted by administration, I remember like just being so blown away at so many of the parents that seemed completely unfazed and did not care, and then then would say something to the effect of, well, you know, boys will be boys. I remember hearing that and being so blown because I, I did not have those parents. I never heard that phrase, not one time in my life. They never overlooked my behavior. They never justified it under the heading of boys will be boys. They were much more like, if you act like a boy, you're going to pay for it. Like that was their mentality. And apparently God's a lot more like my parents than he was the parents of so many of my friends growing up. God never turns a blind eye to our conduct. Now this is very important because I cannot tell you after whatever it's been, 15-ish years of being a pastor, how many 
times I've sat across from someone that has said some version of this to me. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, I know I'm doing some things that God says I shouldn't do, but I don't feel bad about it, and I don't really feel like God cares. I've had that conversation more times than I can count. And every time I hear some version of that, my warning is always the same. Do not ever confuse your feelings with God's indifference. Don't ever confuse your feelings with God's indifference. Whether or not you care says nothing of whether or not God cares. Whether or not you feel a sense of conviction about it says virtually nothing about how God feels about it. He judges impartially. See, grace does not free us to do whatever we want to do. Grace frees us to conform to God's goodwill for our lives. And so Peter says that feeling a sense of reverence, that's the word that he uses, feeling a sense of reverence toward God is critical to living consistent with this new birth. Now, I think we probably all know what reverence is. It's a a feeling of profound respect for someone or for something. Now, we've all felt some version of reverence in our lives, and we can feel reverence toward a a number of different things. I, I, for instance, when I was young, um, I was on vacation with my family. I was probably seven, eight years old, and we were in San Diego, and we were boogie boarding all day long. And by the afternoon, I was starting to feel very, very comfortable, and as is my MO, I started to get pretty cocky uh, about how well I was doing and uh, how in control of the experience I was. And then that afternoon, a wave that I was on broke quite unexpectedly for me and slammed me into the ocean floor. And I'm, I just was like so like discombobulated by that. It took me forever to like stand back up. And then I remember standing up, looking out at the ocean. And as soon as I opened my eyes, another huge wave, boom, right back down. And this one slammed me into the ground and the rip current dragged me across the sand. No wetsuit. I just looked like I, it was terrible. I was all red and ripped to shreds like I'd been dragged across, across a cheese grater. And so I finally like come to myself, but I remember being seven, eight years old. I, I never will forget this moment and being like being tossed around and thinking this is, this is how I die. This is, I'm not, I'm not coming back from this. I'm never going to stand back up. I'm going to drown. And by God's grace, I did finally get to my feet and I got out of the ocean. And, and, and that experience had a profound impact on me that day. Because after I, I kind of came to myself and got a little bit of my confidence back, I went into that water very, very different. I felt much more humility. I was much more respectful of the ocean. And what I felt was reverence in that moment. And I think that if we are not careful, we are very much in danger of losing a sense of reverence for God when we emphasize his imminence which is a a word that Matt used when he was leading worship. When we emphasize his imminence, his closeness, his nearness, his intimacy with us, when we emphasize that to the exclusion of his transcendence, we lose a sense of reverence for him. When we make God nothing more than our friend, we forget that he is also the transcendent, consuming fire, holy, perfect, completely otherly God of the universe. Life and death are in his hands. Judgment and mercy are his alone. And when we forget that, we lose this sense of reverence. And I think, honestly, 
One of the liabilities of a church like ours is that it is easier for us at times to lose reverence. We are very relaxed culturally. Like the fact that I preach in pants as a win. There were times during quarantine I was like, I don't even need to wear pants. It's just a screen. I'm just going <laughs> to preach in my underwear and a nice shirt. So we're just, we're very, very relaxed like this. And we, uh, we laugh together and we can just be very normal together. We're in this like just very normal space. And, and one of the things that can be lost in that, when you think about church history of the past and still uh, denominations that have much more of a high church culture and environment, the whole point of these massive cathedrals that were constructed, the point of them was not just so that people would look at them and go, that church has got a lot of money. That was not the goal. The goal was that when you walked in, you felt small. That was the point. That's why they were built so high. So that when you walked in, it took your breath away. So that you would realize, I'm here to worship someone so much bigger than me. I'm here to worship someone who is other than me. They were meant to create a, set of, set, a sense of reverence. And, and, and as we close, I want you to notice that it, it's not just who God is that should cause us to revere him, but also what he has done for us in Christ. Look at verse 18. He says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished, spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, there is only one reason and one reason alone that this new birth is accessible to any of us. It's not because of our intelligence. It's not because of our abilities. It's not because of our good works and our faithfulness. It's not because of our appearance. It's not because of our pedigree. It's not because of our education or our ethnicity. The singular reason that this new birth into abundant life is accessible to us is because Jesus Christ the sinless Son of God and second member of the Trinity stepped into human history and despite his sinlessness, he chose to shed his blood and to give up his perfect life in the most gruesome way imaginable. And so all, he did all of this so that we could experience a new way of thinking, a new way of belonging, and a new way of feeling. And the truth is, the more that we contemplate what our salvation cost Jesus, the more reverence we should feel toward him because it wasn't cheap. It literally cost him everything. His blood is our singular access point to birth into this new life. It is only through him. And so the question is, will we choose to set our hope on this grace? Will we choose to obey his voice? Will we choose to revere his sacrifice on our behalf because this is how we prepare for the road ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough 
to look on our state and to look on our situation apart from you and to feel mercy and compassion. Because when you, when you looked on us, Lord, you, you did see hard-headed, rebellious children bent on doing whatever they wanted to do. And rather than feel irritation or annoyed, you felt compassion and love. And you sent your one and only son, Jesus, into this world to do what we could not do, to perfectly obey you in every way. And we thank you that after completely fulfilling your law in our place, that Jesus took all of our sin upon his sinless shoulders and he willingly went to the cross and shed his blood so that we could be made new. And Lord, we acknowledge that we did not deserve that, that we did not earn that, that it was an act of grace. And so, Lord, I just pray that the reality of who you are and the reality of what you have done for us in Christ, the price that you paid for us, would humble our hearts and would cause us, when we come up against these commands from you that don't make sense to us or that we honestly just don't agree with, that we would trust. If if you were willing to go to that length to make us your own, you are worthy of our trust. And so, Lord, it might be hard for us, but I I pray that with your Holy Spirit's help, we would not conform any longer to the desires of our former life, that instead we would be holy as you are holy, and that we would not see that as a burden that we take on, but a demonstration of our decision to trust that you are our good Father. So we need your help for all of that. Help us to love you. Help us to believe you. And help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.